Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 11th, 2015, and my guest is Nicholas Vincent, professor of medieval history at the University of East Anglia and the author of Magna Carta, a very short introduction. Nick, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you very much. This uh, 2015 is the 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta, which was signed in June of uh, 1215. And I have to confess, until reading your book, I knew an embarrassingly small amount about the Magna Carta, other than to suspect it was important. Uh, And I also worry that some of my listeners are in the same boat, which is why you're here. So let's start with the basics. Uh, What what was it physically? Who was there when it was issued? Uh, what um, What was it about? How long was it? How big is it? And how many copies are there? That kind of just introduction. Okay, so we're talking about a document of about 4,000 words, so not a particularly long document by modern standards, written on a piece of sheepskin parchment about the size of an average, not particularly huge, television screen. So it's about two feet tall by about a foot across. It's not a very large document, 4,000 words. And it's an attempt made between the King of England, chap called King John, and his barons, with the bishops in there somewhere, to make peace after a period when the barons had revolted against the king, claiming that the king had gone against the liberties and customs of England, and that they were going to use this document to reimpose that law on the king. Now, there's an awful lot that's said about Magna Carta that people think is in Magna Carta that isn't actually there, and I suspect we're going to come on to that in due course. But... Just to get one thing straight for a start, that the really important thing about this document, the really important thing about it, it didn't make peace between the king and his people, it didn't establish democracy, it didn't do this, it didn't do that. What it did do was state that the king is under the law. And it's that institution of the rule of law that I think is the thing we should be celebrating this year in the 800th anniversary year. Well, that's one of the things that I think resonates throughout the last 800 years. But there are a number of other things that, uh, even though they may not have been important in 1215, came to be important later, and we'll talk about them. Uh, one thing to let's let's put the uh, the history in context. Tell us about King John's father. Uh, tell us about King John's brother Richard. And uh, I suspect it's important that there was not an alternative king hanging around who would make an obvious. Um, choice for the barons to promote in a real rebellion, which was part of the reason I suspect this was issued from what I've read. And uh, so give us that historical context. Who was who was King John's father and what, why were they so mad at him? Okay, so it's always very dangerous if you've got a dynasty with three members. The first one is the founder of the dynasty. He tends to be pretty good. The second one can be good or bad, as the case may be. And you want to watch out for the third one. And I say that to Russ I say that to you, Russ, because I, I realize from where you are failing at the moment. I'm just giving you a small warning. <laughs> um, Henry the Much Second, appreciated. 
Yeah. Back to the heart. Uh, Henry II, King of England. Okay, he's King John's father. He came to the throne in 1154. He managed to hoover up, really as a result of a series of dynastic accidents and marriages, he hoovered up a huge territory that comprised not just England, the realm of England, but parts of Wales, parts of Scotland. He introduced English rule to Ireland, and above all, in Western France, he came to control through marriage and inheritance all of the western seaboard of France, from Normandy in the north all the way down to the Pyrenees, down to Aquitaine in the south. So he was the founder of this great dynasty, and he was generally regarded as a phenomenon in his own times. He's seen as someone a bit like the Emperor Charlemagne 400 years before. He's seen as one of the great centers of learning and knowledge and power and influence and majesty. Now, he, by the time of his death in 1189, was pretty close to defeating the King of France altogether. The King of France by this stage has been reduced to a small rump of territory round the city of Paris, what we call the Ile de France, the, the island of France. There was a real prospect that these Plantagenet kings of England, also ruling in France, that they would seize control of all of those lands that belonged to kings of France. Henry died in the midst of a rebellion led by his eldest son, the future King Richard I, and that was one of the downsides of Henry's family. This was a family that fought amongst itself. It was a dysfunctional family, the Plantagenet dynasty. They were constantly rebelling against one another, brothers against brothers, sons against fathers. Richard I used this great collection of lands that Henry had acquired and all of the money that went with that to pay for a crusade in the Holy Land. And again, if we're thinking of more recent times, think of that, a dynastic founder whose first successor uses all that money to invest in a foreign war that wasn't necessarily seen by everybody as a great success. So during the course of that war, Richard failed to retake Jerusalem. He spent an enormous amount of money on it. This is Richard. He got an awful lot of bad publicity internationally. This is Richard the Lionhearted, correct? This is Richard the Lionheart, the, the eldest surviving son of Henry II. He um, didn't retake Jerusalem. He did, to some extent, reestablish the position of the Crusader kingdoms in the east after a very shaky period where Saladin had seized most of them. But he didn't fully reestablish his dynasty. He certainly didn't retake Jerusalem. He didn't reestablish the kings in Jerusalem. And he spent a great because deal of money, I assume, as well. An enormous amount of money, yep. largely raised from taxation from England and from France. Uh, on his crusade, he made himself very unpopular with the Duke of Austria, so that yep. as he was returning through Europe on his way back to England, he was taken prisoner, basically kidnapped by the Duke of Austria, was held captive, was sold to the Emperor of Germany, and in the longer term was forced to pay a massive ransom of 100,000 marks, that's 66,000 pounds, roughly twice the annual income of the King of England, all of that money to get Richard out of captivity in Germany. So Richard went down in history as a, a, a military wonder who'd led this great campaign, who had achieved chivalrous deeds in the East, but who, as a result, had very heavily taxed England, had effectively bankrupted this vast treasure that Henry II had built up in order to pay for foreign adventures. And it's in those circumstances that Richard died in 1199 
and that his younger brother, the youngest son of Henry II, King John, came to the throne. I have to say, as, as you pause there, that uh, this reminds me a bit of when a uh, Shakespeare play, uh, Shakespearean play gets set in, say, the 1940s or 20s. To, uh, I think you've put the, some modern clothing on some of these stories, which I, I'm enjoying. Uh, so he comes into office in 1199, and uh, how's it go for him? He, he doesn't – historically, he's got a bad rep. So what, what, uh, what went wrong? Uh, there's a view that says when John came to the throne – People were looking forward to it. They were optimistic about what he might do. He was young. He wasn't uh, his father. He wasn't his elder brother. He was intelligent. He was literate. Uh, he had some experience of ruling in Ireland. So there were some, maybe at the time, who viewed this as a new beginning. Now, if that was the case, I suspect that within a matter of weeks, let alone months, they realized that they got a problem on there. The honeymoon was over. <laughs> very, very quickly. Uh, you know, it's it's very easy in the in the longer term to say, oh well, the trouble here is that John has a bad reputation because his his reign ended in disaster. It's a it's a story generally written backwards. We know that the reign ended badly, and therefore perhaps it wasn't so bad at the beginning. It's just that in hindsight, people think it was. Even at the time, even back at the beginning of John's reign, there were clearly people who thought he was an out and out rotter. He had already shown himself to be disloyal. He had rebelled against his brother whilst Richard was in captivity in Germany. He had ruled in an arbitrary way in Ireland. He was surrounded by a group of cronies, his own particular followers, who were not very popular. And he was not trusted even at the time of his accession. So that he was a man who would stab you in the back as soon as look at you. And this really did create problems more or less from the start. This is despite the fact that, that Henry and, and his, his sons, when they were coronated, would issue a proclamation that was basically a, an oath to be a really good guy, correct? Yes, they, they would generally issue a charter, a coronation charter, saying that their predecessor had ruled badly, but they would do well in future. It's, it's standard policy. We do apologize for the mistakes of the previous regime, but we're going to rule much better in future. Now, that was true of Henry. It wasn't true of Richard. Richard issued no coronation charter, so far as we know. And John, when he came to the throne, didn't issue a coronation charter. He issued a rather strange administrative order involving the costs of getting letters from the king. He does all those sorts of things you'd expect him to do. It blackens the reputation of Richard. It blackens the previous regime, but it wasn't really a standard coronation charter. So tell us about the role of the courts at this point. You make a, a point in your book of, of saying that the rise of, a, of just the basic existence of a legal system was, was important at this point. Uh, what would happen in a court of law in England at this time that was uh, part of the problem for King John's uh, baronial uh, reputation? Okay, so law in England is very, very old. It goes way, way back beyond the Norman Conquest of 1066. It's 400, 500 years old by the time that King John came to the throne. It's largely custom. It isn't written down. There isn't a book called The Laws of England that you can go to in 1199 when John came to the throne. But there is an understanding that law exists. And there is an understanding that the courts operate according to the law. The problem is, though, that the law at this time was also a major source of revenue to the crown. 
it was a revenue source in part because the people who lost their cases in court, if I sued you for some land and I lost, I then had to pay a fine. I had to pay the court's expenses. All of that money went to the king. It was also very important to the king as a symbol of his authority. So that the king increasingly, from Henry II's time onwards, drew as much business as was possible into his courts because in doing so, he deprived other lords of the jurisdiction that they had previously exercised. So that the great barons of England found that people who'd previously come to their courts to litigate now took their business to the king's court. So that made the king an economic competitor with the barons for the businesses of these various courts. And it also meant that when the king was short of money, he would use the fines of his court to rack as much as he could from those whose cases were lost or in the case of those who were prepared to pay lots of money to the king to win their case, what we would think of as bribery, but in the 12th and 13th centuries was merely a standard part of the judicial process. Whatever happened, you were bound to pay the king. Um, he began to greatly increase the size of those fines that he was charging for litigation in his court. And just to give a little uh, background for old-time listeners or new-time listeners, uh, we make a distinction sometimes on this program between law and legislation, a distinction emphasized by Hayek, uh, law being what people expect as the customer yep. norms of the day, legislation being writ written down statutes. Yep. So people make a, a contrast between common law, the so-called British system, and statute law, which is more like legislation – you suggest in your book, though, that, that that distinction's somewhat misleading uh, in the case of the situation then at the time. There's quite a lot of legislation around at the time. So we're not in an entirely customary system. We are in a system whereby both statute law and customary law are, are, are operating side by side. So Henry II, King John's father, had issued a series of assizes and a series of what we would call acts, statutes, laws, written laws, particularly involving um, criminal jurisdiction, um, these existed. Whether they were very well publicized is another story. But in other words, it's a mixed system. It's also a system, we talk about the common law system, we often use that term, common law, to distinguish the laws of England or the Anglophone tradition yep. from law on the continent, which operates according to Roman law tradition, which actually goes all the way back to Justinian and beyond. Well, actually, the Napoleonic Code a, being an example of a written it, down precisely. clear. So, so you know, there, it isn't about precedent. It isn't about what happens in the court. It isn't about pleading. It's about what's written down in a code of law. Well, actually, th those, those Roman traditions also do play a role in England. England isn't an entirely um, insular system cut off from all of that. It's also a system in which a lot of the justices are themselves lawyers, but church lawyers, canon lawyers, and the canon law tradition, which again derives from written statutes issued by the popes, that too is very important in England. So we, we shouldn't at this stage be too picky about saying this is the common law of England, which is entirely distinct from Roman law or entirely distinct from canon law. Kings, barons, whoever it might be, use whatever law they think they can get away with using in court. Just like and today. They use, it, they use it for their own advantage. And as I say, there is also a, a significant financial advantage to the king here. 
But there are other financial things going on, which are you know hard for us to to imagine. Uh, in 2015, the king uses a lot of arbitrary power, uh, particularly at death, uh, in terms of the disposition of estates, uh, the inheritance of a, of a castle, the, situ- the a widow's control of castles. Talk about some of the ways that the king was uh, bringing money in from uh, okay. everyday life events. Okay, England after the Norman Conquest of 1066 is placed in a very strange position. So elsewhere, people own their land outright. They, they don't really hold it from the king. But because in 1066, the, the Normans conquered England and seized all the land and gave it all to the king, and the king then distributed it. In England, unlike France or unlike other parts of Europe, all land is ultimately held from the king. And it's generally held from the king via a great person who we will call a baron or an earl. These barons hold their land directly from the king, great estates, which is then distributed amongst a series of knights. Now, every time a baron dies, his heir owes a sum of money to the king called a relief. It's not a very large sum of money, or at least it doesn't need to be a very large sum of money, but it's significant as demonstrating that at each generation, the king, in theory, has the right to step in and redistribute this land. If the baron dies whilst his son or heir is still a minor, is still under the age of 21, then the king acts as guardian, as, as treating this heir as a ward, and can do pretty much what he likes with the estate of that young heir, until the heir comes of age. So he can use it to reward his followers. He can marry off the daughters of a baron to a particular follower and make that follower rich. He can use this large body of land that's held by the barons really for the patronage of the crown. And there are a whole series of customary taxes that go with this system, what we would call the feudal system, There are a whole series of taxes and customs that go with this that mean that the king's lordship, again, has a very significant financial aspect to it. Um, So I don't know whether we could find a modern equivalent for that. We're talking about a combination of inheritance tax, but also really a system in which if you die with no heir, not only can the king step in and, and grab your land, but he can actually grant your daughters away or your sons away in marriage to the sons and daughters of his own particular followers. It's a very personalized system. It's a system in which marriages and marriage alliances are much, much more significant than they are today, save perhaps today amongst the very, very super rich, um, amongst those who really want to build up a vast oligarchic wealth by they are being heir to one great corporation, they marry their heir to the heiress to another great corporation. We're in that sort of realm of the corporate oligarchs. Yeah, the, oh, there, there's a certain, um, when you say what's the modern equivalent, I, I think of the city of Chicago in the 1950s, actually. It's not quite that way, but the patronage aspect of it is is clearly extremely important to the king. And the yeah. competition uh, what we would call rent-seeking in modern economics, the competition among uh, potential favorites of the king must have been quite intense. And as a reader of Smith's theory of moral sentiments, when he decries people in the court who are scurrying around for favor and fawning on the powerful, I've always wondered what he had in mind. And this is this is part of what he had in mind, even though he's writing 500 years later in 1759. 
he's writing about the competition to get access to the, uh, the zero-sum game of this castle's going to somebody and I hope it's me. Yeah, exactly. And there is an enormous profit to be made there from people who are courtly, who can actually get on with this really very difficult ruling dynasty, who can get access to this ruling dynasty, because the dynasty also, like lots of dynasties, for the most part, hides itself away. It, it, it's out hunting, it's out doing the things that kings do. It's actually very difficult to get at the king. He's traveling a so, lot. He, he, does, he's not a very, he doesn't hang out much at, at one place, it seems. He, he's got this vast collection of lands in France and in England, and the only way really of governing it at the time is to travel through it, regularly to be seen in each place, regularly to be there to do justice. So the king is constantly in the saddle. It's why these kings don't live very long. They, they, none of them really live beyond their 50s. They spend their life in the saddle, day by day, traveling from one place to another. They're really the first, the pioneers of the management by walking around uh, theory that I think I'm, I'm teasing a little bit, but it's, you know, it's a serious uh, concept in management. Yep. You get on the floor and you talk to the people and we're talking about a world with very limited communication. Uh, when the king yep. was in France and you were in England, he was very far away. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, but we still got it today. I mean, th there is this, the business of the, the face-to-face meeting is still terribly, terribly yeah. important. T today, you could run the whole of the world economy on the telephone or through the internet. And yet, people don't do that. They're constantly jet-setting around the world because the face-to-face -face meeting where things actually get done. So get us to 1215. We've got a king comes into power at 1199. Uh, he be, he's a bit rapacious. Uh, he seems to be uh, very grasping at, at these opportunities for patronage and uh, taxation and, and taking lands and money. And so he, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, build up a lot of love among the barons. What pushes them to what becomes the, the key in, in 1215? There's no real um, obvious, it seems to me, or is there? example of what brings us to the confrontation of 1215? I think there are three or four things that bring us to 1215. And we're, you know, we've got a 15-year period, so let's cover it in the next whoa, couple of minutes. Yeah, five minutes. Um, you're missing out one very important thing there, Russ, which is the macroeconomics behind all of this. Um, and I, for an audience who's interested in, in economics, I think this is significant. It's generally agreed that at this period, Europe as a whole, is going through a period of really quite significant inflation. So there's quite significant monetary inflation. The prices of hiring a knight, the prices of besieging a castle, are rising exponentially. The king's revenues at this time are, to a large extent, rented out. They're farmed out at fixed farms. So the kings of England have a very large revenue from, say, the county of Yorkshire, big county. And for that, they have an official locally who pays them regularly the same sum of money, £200. And he paid them that in 1150, and he's still paying them that in 1220. The actual value of that rent has declined massively as the cost of everything else has risen. So there is a strong argument that says the king, for a start, was in an impossible situation economically. He was forced to turn to these extraordinary fines, these extraordinary exploitations of wardships and heiresses and daughters. He has to do all of that to keep up with inflation because his main assets are locked away in a fixed return bond, if you like, in the form of land and rents that isn't actually going up. Are you with me so far? Carry on. So, 
against that background, King John himself behaved appallingly, I think is the best way we can put it. In the Middle Ages, if you were a king, you were supposed to do two things. You were supposed to be just, you dispensed justice, and you held on to your lands and ideally expanded them. John failed in all those respects. He was seen widely as being unjust, and he failed to hold on to what his family had. And the, 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 the first real key instance of that came in 1202. The king's nephew, Arthur of Brittany, rebelled against him. This was a dysfunctional family. People had always been rebelling against one another within it. John took Arthur prisoner. It was John's one real example of military genius. He managed to seize Arthur and all of Arthur's supporters in a lightning raid on the Loire. And at that point, Arthur just disappeared. Now, nobody knows what happened to him. Some people say that John himself murdered him. Some say that John sent an assassin. Some say that Arthur died attempting to escape. But in the past, kings had faced rebellions. They'd locked away their brothers and cousins and so forth, but they hadn't murdered them. John not only murdered his nephew, but murdered a nephew who bore the name Arthur, a legendary name in English history, and a boy who was only 15 years old. Arthur was only 15 years old at the time of his taking by John. So he is a child murderer. He is uh, a, a, a tyrant who kills members of his own family. The result of that was a great rebellion in France, a rebellion against the king's injustice that led the king of France himself from Paris to invade Normandy, the whole of Normandy, the whole of Anjou, the whole of the king's territories north of the Loire fell to the king of France in 1204. So John had not only shown himself to be a tyrant, but also lost his lands. He'd done two of the things that kings are not supposed to do in the Middle Ages. A third thing that kings are not supposed to do, they're not supposed to fall out with the church. But in 1205, the year after the loss of Normandy, John had a major falling out with the Pope. The Pope did not want John's own candidate to be elected Archbishop of Canterbury. The Pope insisted that John take a particular individual, a man named Stephen Langton, as his Archbishop. John refused. The Pope placed the English church, in effect, under a state of strike. So... For the next six years, there were no masses said, the dead went unburied in consecrated ground, there was no Christian marriage, the sacraments were denied to the Christian faithful. So you can't really get much worse than that, you would think. John has... It was, it was excuse me for interrupting, it was John's father who, uh, under whose auspices um, uh, Beckham Beckham. was murdered, Correct. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it was a family with a troubled uh, – movie fans will remember um, – it's The Lion and Winter, if I remember correctly, which is a lovely film. I don't know if it's historically accurate. But uh, they have a troubled – besides their dysfunctional relationship with each other, they don't do a great job with the church. They do. This is a family in which there's an awful lot of shouting, in which there's an awful lot of throwing of plates. Uh, you know, the Catherine Hepburn version of this family, yeah, that's not very far off in The Lion in Winter. Um, and also, they are a family who rather delight in the idea that they came from the devil. They claim that their <laughs> ultimate ancestress was a she-devil called Melusine. They actually boast about it. And after the murder of Thomas Beckett in 1170, in which Henry II did play a part, maybe innocent, maybe not, but right. certainly he was seen as having said the fateful words that led to Beckett's murder, the family was widely regarded as the sons of Satan. 
you know, they, they really were not very popular in the eyes of the church, mm-hmm. which is why the Pope could place the Church of England under interdict rather than have John have his own man-made archbishop. Sorry, I interrupt. Now, that's three of four. Well, so that's three well, bad we're ones. Almost, What's left? We're almost there. We're almost there, Russ. One, one further thing here. How much worse could this get? Well, John used that period of the papal interdict to seize the lands of the church. He became immensely wealthy. Not only was he now taxing all his barons, but he was also taxing the church directly. He built up a vast war chest, huge treasure. Probably he was the richest king in English history between William the Conqueror in 1066 and Henry VIII at the beginning of the 16th century, who closed down the monasteries and seized the land of the church and became very wealthy as a result of the Reformation. And John staked all that money on a bid to reconquer his lands in France. And that bid went horribly wrong. John's northern army was defeated on the 27th of July, 1214, just outside the city of Lille in northern France at a place called Bouvines. And that battle, the Battle of Bouvines, really is as important in the history of France as the Battle of Hastings is in the history of England. It set the kings of France on the road to wealth and fortune thereafter, And in the aftermath of it, John had to slink back to England for the second time, totally defeated in war, having tried to reconquer his lands in France and failed. And that's really where the road to Runnymede begins. And just to make it clear, I don't, again, having read your book, I have an appreciation of this I wouldn't otherwise have. We talk about taxes or fees or other things. Uh, in modern terms, we think about, oh, they raised the sales tax rate from 65 to 7, or yep. the in- highest rate of income tax went from 29 to 40, whatever it is. Uh, these, well, Ralph, it's hard- you're in America, so you can talk in those terms, but if you're in Europe, uh, we would be very grateful for a rate of tax at that level. But, yes, but that's because you yes, don't have right. – st- well, we have state taxes on top of it, which people often forget. You do, so yes. it's about – it can be up to in the high 40s, but – the, the, and 50 when you include sales tax and when you include the burden on the corporate tax. Anyway, that's not the yeah. point. The point I want to <laughs> emphasize is the arbitrary nature of some of the fees that are going to the king uh, that are not yeah. uh, customary or statute-driven. The king's – he's throwing his weight around over the, in this period for financial gain that must have really annoyed the everybody yeah. who had to deal with him. The actual rate of tax is nothing like what the rich pay today. I mean, we, 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 the, the rich, and I'm not the rich, and I suspect neither are you, pay a certain level of tax. But, um, you know, the, 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 the people pay, as you say, up to 50% of their income in tax. No one is doing that back then in the early 13th century. But they don't that have iPhones, make... so they're miserable, even with a low rate of tax. Exactly, precisely. <laughs> and they're not accustomed to it. That's the most important thing. They're just not used to it. And the other thing, as you quite rightly say, is that it's arbitrary. So today, if they raise taxes in, I don't know, Idaho, you can actually protest against that. You can stand up and say, no, I don't want to pay this. And you can risk going to jail and everything else. In the 13th century, you don't have the choice. There isn't a higher authority. There isn't a Congress or any sort of body to which you can appeal There is no debate. The king is completely sovereign within his own land. And if he says that tax is to be charged at this rate, then at that rate it will be charged. And But it seems to me he also would sometimes just make up situations where he just felt like he could get some more money out of folks, which it's a human failing. I don't, you know, I don't understand it, but it's not, it doesn't make friends or influence people. And, and when you were talking about walk-around management, think this of King John, too, that up to that point in 1204, where John had had all these lands in France, for the most of his reign, 
like that of his brother who was off in the Holy Land or like that of his father who was off in France. These were absentee kings. They weren't there. But from 1204, John is parading around England on the shop floor looking for all the opportunities he can find to make more money. He's eyeing up the daughters and wives of his barons. He's seen widely as a lecher. He is the sort of really horrible boss who is there on the shop floor day after day looking for ways to make your life miserable. And even though it's a different media age, you're suggesting he's a little overexposed in the, in the public eye. Uh, I like that. That's, that's very nice. So we come um, – I just have to mention in passing, uh, I'm 60 years old. For those of you who are, say, 58 and over uh, in the United States, uh, the mention of Henry VIII just – brings to mind Herman's Hermits, and I'm just going to leave that there and let it sit there for those in the audience uh, who appreciate that. But uh, let's uh, talk about uh, Runnymede, which you just mentioned. This is where this confrontation or so-called peace treaty uh, takes place. Uh, where is that physically in England? And if you can, tell the okay, King— it's on the Thames. Tell so the King it, George VI story, which I, which I really love, the World War II story. I thought that was utterly charming. Okay, so it's on the Thames. It's between London and Windsor Castle. And there's a wonderful story, as you say, at the end of the Second World War, just after the D-Day landings. The king wanted to go off and actually lead his troops. He wanted to be at the head of his troops, George VI, the king of the king's speech. And Winston Churchill said, no, he couldn't do that. And the king was so cross that as they went driving back from London late at night to Windsor Castle, he put his fist out of the window of the car and pointed at the field of Runnymede on the Thames and said, that is the place, and I think he said, that is the something place, that is the place where it all began. (laughs) Because it's there, as it were, that kings began to be placed under the rule of law. Halfway between... London and Windsor, a little bit closer to Windsor than to London. The key point there to bear in mind is that this was chosen because on the 17th of May, 1215, almost exactly 800 years ago from the time that you and I are talking, it's coming up on Sunday, the 800th anniversary of that, these barons fed up with the king seized the city of London, seized the king's capital, and forced the king into negotiation. So Runnymede is chosen because it's midway between the barons in London and the king now in his great fortress at Windsor. Oh, so it's a perfect compromise uh, spot. It's, it's neutral territory. It's neutral territory. It lies on the frontiers between three counties, so, uh, and it also lies on a river. So the rivers have always been seen as liminal places, places where negotiations can take place. So here's something I don't remember from, the, from your book, and maybe we just don't know because it's, um, CNN wasn't there uh, or, the BBC, <laughs> or the BBC. So... What happened? Did did somebody show up with this piece of parchment? Were there negotiations? How, how did the content come to be? I know there's disputes over who literally wrote it. I'm sure there are disputes over who inspired or, or uh, dictated the text. What do we know about where the content may have come from uh, on okay, that day? The, con- the content's in the air for quite a long time before the meeting at Runnymede. So, for a start, the barons, from the moment that the king came back to England in 1214, began saying that the king must issue a charter. He must do what his ancestor, Henry I, had done in 1100, and issue a charter actually with specific terms saying that he would limit the taxes and exactions and exploitation of his barons. So, there's clearly negotiation going on throughout the winter of 1214-1215 for nine months before ever we get to Runnymede. 
And I've, I've just been looking at the events of exactly 800 years ago this week, where we begin to get references this week to the king saying, well, I will allow the barons to judge one another by their peers in my court. Now, that idea of judgment by peers did eventually come out in Runnymede four or five weeks down the line from here, but it was clearly already in the ether at this stage. Another thing that makes things rather complicated here, people knew at the time that these were really important negotiations. They, they knew that they were participating in something of historic significance. We know that because they kept various of the bits and pieces of parchment that were flying around at this time. So we have early drafts of Magna Carta that clearly escaped from the negotiations. Not only were they taken away, but they were kept very carefully. They were kept almost as if they were holy relics of a very significant set of negotiations. And trying to fit those in to what we know of what came out of the negotiations is actually what keeps historians in business today. I mean, it, nobody quite agrees who said what to whom at what particular point. But we do know that there was a, a very heated negotiation, a very sophisticated negotiation between some pretty sophisticated individuals before ever we get to, to Magna Carta. Well, it's pretty remarkable because we have a similar debate about the American founding document, the Declaration of Independence, who actually wrote it. We have drafts, we have crossouts, we have emendations, and, um, and it's, uh, of course, a fascinating historical question. This is a long time before that. This is half a, half a millennium uh, before that, and it's uh, a rather remarkable thing that we have anything at all, that any of it survived. That's scra right. Forget and scraps, that we had the actual Magna Carta is, is uh, of course, there's more than, than one issue of it. We'll get to the various editions in a minute, but the fact that we have any of those is really quite extraordinary. So let's go to the document itself. Uh, Again, as, as, a, as an ignorant person, I would have thought it was something like the Declaration of Independence, a set of grand principles. Uh, and There's a little of that, but it's actually quite remarkably detailed. It has 63 very specific clauses about how things should proceed from now on. So talk about the general content and some of the specifics of, of, the, of the document. Okay, so we're talking about 4,000 words, and it, at the time it was issued, it wasn't broken down into these 62 points. That's something oh. we've imposed on and it. And it's in Latin. There's a big, big the block of Latin text. Yeah. The negotiations can't have been done in Latin. They would have been done in French, which was the language of the king, the language of the elite. Even though they, they rule in, in England, these are Anglo-French barons, they speak French. So we've got to imagine problems of translation going on here too. And... Um, as I say, there's a quite heated negotiation that goes on before this. So they have to decide what to keep in and what to get out. There's only a certain amount of material that they can get onto one sheet of parchment. So some things stay in, other things sort of hit the cutting room floor. You're absolutely right, though. Unlike the Declaration of Independence, it does not have really significant statements of principle built into it. A lot of it is not at all the hot air that you would expect it to be. It's nitty-gritty stuff yep. about how much precisely it should be paid when an heir inherits his lands, if he is a knight or if he is a baron or if he is an earl. What precisely should be the circumstances in which a widow or the daughter of a baron should go into the king's custody? and so on and so forth. A lot of it is actually about the specific nitty-gritty of peace negotiations with the Welsh, 
with the Scots, both of whom had joined the barons in 1215, had seen a good thing when it was coming, had actually jumped on the bandwagon and were part of this rebellion. And it's definitely, it it's, definitely sorry, not, sorry. it's definitely not about the people, by the way, which is also a romantic There's thought virtually. I might have had. It's about the barons. There's virtually nothing about the people. There is one reference to the people, if by the people we mean the peasants. And it's a very, very um, specific reference. It says that villains should not be so heavily taxed in the king's courts that they lose the means of their subsistence. And it actually says that merchants shouldn't have their merchandise taken away, villains shouldn't have their peasants, shouldn't have their complete livelihood taken away, and that freemen should not actually lose their, their means of livelihood either. Fascinatingly, that was later used by slave owners in America and in Jamaica to say that Magna Carta actually institutes the idea of slavery. It allows the division of society between freemen and merchants and peasants, each of whom has specific rights under this constitution. So it, it, it definitely isn't directed to no. all people. The devil can yeah, quote can scripture. I, yeah, go ahead. Precisely, the devil can quote scripture. There is one rather fascinating point in it, though, which is of very great significance there. Almost the very last clause of the charter, up to that point, it's all been about the rich, it's all about the elite, it's all about the barons and the earls and their rights and privileges. Um, and then... Almost at the end, it states that all of the liberties that are here granted to the barons should be extended by the barons to their own subjects, to their knights and freemen. In other words, there is an idea at the very end that this thing is for everybody. And by the much later period, by the 16th century, by which stage there isn't really slavery in England, there isn't serfdom, there aren't peasants who are bonded to their land anymore. By that stage, it meant that the charter as a whole could be used as a liberty document. Can I, can I say one other thing that is in the charter that's also very significant and yes. that's often overlooked? The charter begins with a grant of liberties not to the people of England, not to the barons, not to the earls, not to the peasants, but to the church. It says that the church in England is to be free and to have all its ancient liberties intact. Now, that's a rather odd clause to find at the very beginning of something that we think is all about the Constitution. Think of the American Constitution. There's a deliberate writing out of any sort of established religion from the American Constitution. Magna Carta is the precise opposite of that. The reason the church is there is partly because the church and its leaders were crucial in these negotiations. They headed the peace negotiations, and this was their clause that they made sure came in at the beginning. Mm. But it's also because the charter to begin with is granted to God. The charter begins, we have granted to God that the church in England is to be free. Now, the, we, it's the, we there, God, the we there is the, is, is the it's king. It's the royal we yeah, of the, the king. Royal, yeah. It's this King John. It's basically me, I, King John, but he, he refers to himself in the first person plural. We, we the king. We the king grant to God. Now, the reason that's there at the beginning is that if you give God something, you can't ask for it back, or <laughs> you, you shouldn't ask yes. for it back. You, you can't give God land to build a church and then say, but on Thursday, can I have it back so I can build a car park on it? So the church is there for a very strategic, significant reason at the beginning. But that too is terribly important because it meant that in the longer term, the church had a very strong vested interest in this document. It was the church that preserved the document. It was the church that helped write the document. And it was the church that helped distribute the document around England in the summer of 1215. 
if the church hadn't been there, this might have just bitten the dust like lots and lots of other peace settlements and negotiations between king and barons before. But because the position of the church was built into it, and because the church had archives, the church had a publicity network that could actually publish this thing, therefore the charter survived, therefore it was published, therefore it's still known today. And it's, um, I think of it a little bit differently. I, you can react to this. You say it's kind of the opposite of the U.S. system. It strikes me as somewhat similar in that there's a certain separation of church and state. It's not the same kind, but it basically says the state's not going to mess around with the church. Now, we have it a little bit differently in the United States, obviously, and the church plays a different role in the United States. Religion plays a different role than it does in, in England. Yeah. But there is a certain um, freeing, freeing, which is true in both situations. Would you agree with yeah. that? Yes, I do, in the sense that the, the opening clause of, the, of Magna Carta basically says the church has its own laws, the church has its own liberties that are set apart from those of the state, it's really the triumph of that whole program for which Thomas Beckett had died in 1170, or at least which people said he died for. It is the separation of church and state. And to that extent, yes, it is similar to the American Constitution. But whereas your Constitution, or at least your Bill of Rights, says there will be no established church, this yeah, is very different. different. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's actually saying there is a church establishment, there is this church and establishment. And it's independent, yeah. And it's independent, but it's built into the Charter. I hear you. In, in a way that the... The church in America is almost specifically built out of the Constitution. Now, anybody can read the Magna Carta online and translate it into English. Uh, and if you know Latin, I'm sure you could struggle with some of the um, the original. But I want to talk about two parts of it that fascinated me that I knew nothing about. Uh, first of all, as a Jew, I was fascinated. The Jews get mentioned twice. Uh, yep. The Jews had an, a, a very bizarre role in uh, the king's um, uh, realm at the time. Talk about that. Okay, so the Jews were really exploited by the kings of England. They have no real rights under English law. They are protected solely by the king. And they were introduced to England, probably after the Norman Conquest, really as the king's own private fief, as his own sort of army, whose purpose was to make money for the king. And although um, you, you have this terrible reputation in the Middle Ages for the exploitation of land, mortgages, money lending, and so forth by the Jews, that was something into which Jews were forced very much by kings. Kings wanted the Jews to lend money because the king made a profit from that money lending process. So there's a, there's a, 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 a strange symbiotic relationship there, um, which makes, of course, Jews themselves very unpopular in England. There's a desperate need for credit, but at the same time, by taking credit from Jews, you are likely to fall into the hands of the king in the longer term. If a, if a very wealthy Jewish moneylender dies, the king seizes his bonds, and the, the king has his own specific exchequer of the Jews that deals with the collection of the debts owed to late Jewish moneylenders. And, 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 and vice versa, if you die owing money to the Jews, the king, gets all, the king gets the money, right? Isn't that what the Magna Carta Clause tries to reverse? Well, sort of. What the Magna Carta is, it, yeah, Magna Carta is saying two things in specific reference to the Jews. It says, first of all, that, the, that Jews are not to charge interest on loans made to crusaders. 
So one way of avoiding paying interest on your loans from the Jews is to take vows as a crusader. And basically, that's part of the law of the church, and it's an interesting example in which Magna Carta is in accordance with church law. And then, as you quite rightly say, um, Magna Carta also says that interest is not to accrue on Jewish loans during the years of minority of an orphan. So if a baron dies and he leaves a five-year-old boy, for the next 16 years, until that boy comes of age at 21, that the interest is not to accrue on his debts to the Jews. You can imagine the alternative, that the, the, the baron dies, leaving a four-year-old boy, and over the course of the 16, 17 years between that, the baron dying and the boy coming of age, the entire estate would be eaten up in interest payments to Jewish moneylenders. Yeah, the interest rates at the time were uh, in the 20 to 70% range, if I remember correctly. We're talking about <laughs> massively high interest yeah. rates. They're so high that they're, they're generally concealed. And they're set by the crown, right? They're not, it's not a market, or is it a market rate? Mm, yeah, I think it's a market rate. Okay. The, the crown tries later on to intervene to impose reduced rates of interest. It doesn't really work. And as I say, these interest rates are so high that they are concealed. All the sorts of things that the credit card companies get into trouble for today were true of, of money lending at this time. The, the, you know, they concealed the, the true nature of the debt, the true nature of the interest payment by talking about interest payments over a period of time. We, we're talking about interest that could get as high as 2% a week here. Yeah. This is a very, very high rate of interest. And just to finish up... One, with the, sorry, one other thing yeah. there, there, Ross, is I think very important too... Um, this is not just money lending by Jews. There are, there are plenty of Christian money lenders around at the time, but their activities are entirely illegal. Huh. So although they do lend money... Oh, because they're competing against, with the king's uh, army. <laughs> well, they're also contravening all the laws of usury that the uh -huh. church has laid down. Which is why the Jews are so, there, yeah. So a lot of these merchants, Italian merchants, Flemish merchants, whoever, are actually prepared to lend money, a lot of the king's courtiers lend money, but all of that has to be concealed. All of that is done behind the scenes, and we occasionally get glimpses of it, but it's probably one other reason why rich courtiers are very unpopular, because they are actually moneylenders, and they are participating in something that we only really see in public when it concerns Jewish moneylending. And at some point, just to finish the historical chapter, the Jews get expelled from England, I think, in the late 13th century and don't come yep. back until late 17th, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Oliver Cromwell. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to another uh, really fascinating aspect of this, which is the – I don't know what you call it – the Committee of 25. Uh, talk about the 25 barons um, and its significance. A lot of Magna Carta wasn't really that revolutionary as far as the king was concerned. It was – really doing what it said it was doing, returning to a reasonable state of affairs that had existed in some prelapsarian period in the past where all went well. So fines and so forth are reduced to levels that were regarded as reasonable. What was obnoxious about Magna Carta, what was truly radical about Magna Carta in the eyes of the king, was that it both said that the king could not simply arbitrarily tax his people or arrest his people or do what he wanted to do with his people without obeying the law. And we're probably going to come on to those two really resonating clauses. And at the same time, it said that if the king broke the terms of these, this charter, which he granted to God, so you know, it was really a very bad thing for him to go against it, if he broke the terms of the charter more generally, 
a committee of barons, 25 of them, could, in effect, legally rise up in rebellion against the king and take all measures necessary, seizing his castles, seizing his resources, seizing his treasure, up to actually seizing the king himself and his family. That was not allowed, so they were immune, but the king could lose all his resources to these 25 barons. Now, no king, no sovereign authority is going to accept that. I mean, even America today, you know, the... the, the Supreme Court of America is not going to accept that if it acts outside the law, the United Nations can then station troops across America and seize all American resources and seize the Federal Reserve until such time as the Supreme Court or the sovereign authority in America places itself back under the rule of law. No, but it does remind me a bit of impeachment. It basically says, you think you can do whatever you want? No, we have a formal process by which you are at risk. This is, that's a very, very good analogy. I think the analogy of impeachment is a very good one, and this is effectively impeachment 600 years before it was ever really going to be a practical possibility. You, if you think of the complications of impeachment or the difficulties of getting anybody impeached today, the, the, the same would have applied in the 13th century. It was a completely unrealistic program to put 25 barons over the king, It made it impossible for the king to accept the program. It made it really very difficult for the barons to accept it because the barons didn't really want to take on that degree of public responsibility. And it made it utterly impossible for the pope to accept this treaty. So the king basically ignored Magna Carta within a matter of 10 weeks and the pope formally annulled it. But it did create again the idea, and we're going to come back to the idea part of the Magna Carta because it's clearly in many ways the most important part. It created the idea of a representative body. The barons would decide who those 25 were, and it creates a legislative body, really, that it imagines a legislative body. It does indeed. It creates a self-perpetuating oligarchy of very wealthy barons. (laughs) Okay, that's so romantic perhaps, but... Yeah, but it's, you know, that's how a lot of countries operate later on. So if you think of France in the 17th century, the Fronde is, this is what was being proposed in 1215. You're missing out one other clause here too, which is a little bit better than that. This this 25 barons thing, that's a pretty crude operation. Um, but clause 14 of the 1215 Magna Carta says that the king cannot impose any new taxation without getting consent from the realm. Yep. And he gets that by holding a council. And clause 14 actually lays down very specific rules about how that council is to be summoned. It must be summoned to a fixed place so that the king can't just have it in his cupboard. Uh, It must involve the right sort of people being summoned, barons and knights, representing the community. Now, that clause, too, didn't last very long. It was impractical. But it does already there in 1215 enunciate that principle that there should be no taxation without representation. It doesn't say no taxation without representation, either in French or in Latin. But the principle is there. So it's a failure. Uh, ten weeks later, as you say, it's uh, the king's uh, dismissed it. The church has uh, the Catholic Church has annulled it. Uh, so you'd think it would have subsided into the dustbin of history and just be a footnote, but it's not. What what happened afterwards? Take us up to thirteen hundred briskly, and then let's okay. talk about uh, its uh, role in. Uh, and it's in the afterward in intellectual history. Okay, so very briskly, two reasons why it didn't die. 
It didn't die, first of all, because the church was hardwired into it. And the church had a vested interest in preserving it. The English, in the summer of the English church. The English church. Yeah. And as far as it goes, actually, as we'll see in a moment, the, the, the wider church, but certainly the, the English church in 1215. It's the Catholic church in England. There isn't a Reformation as yet. The whole of the European church obeys the Pope. Um, so, in... Um, in 1215, in the summer of 1215, when King John made absolutely no real efforts to publish the charter, the, bar the, the barons weren't really in a position to publish it. The church went ahead and published the document. That's why it's preserved in at least four cathedral libraries. And it was sent to at least 13 cathedral libraries. The, the charter was preserved because of the church. And then the king died in the middle of this civil war that followed on from the repudiation of the charter leaving a nine-year-old son, Henry III. His ministers had no choice but to reissue the charter as a manifesto of future good government. England was under occupation by a French army. The barons were, majority of the barons were in rebellion against the king. Something pretty drastic had to be done to buy back their support. So the councillors of this boy king, Henry III, reissued Magna Carta. They took out all of the obnoxious bits about a committee of 25 barons. They took out all the stuff about war with Scotland and Wales. They took out all the stuff about expelling foreigners. They took all out all the stuff about the interest on Jewish loans. All of those things went out, and some of the more general principles were left in, and all the clauses about feudal inheritance. They did that in 1216, and because one of them was the Pope's legate, in effect, the Pope now lent his support to this reissued charter. They then won the war. Amazingly, miraculously, they won the war against the barons. And in 1217, having won the war, they reissued the charter. And then when the king came of age in 1225, the charter was reissued again, with the Archbishop of Canterbury, who'd been there at Runnymede, very active in this reissue of 1225. That became the definitive text thereafter. The, the text itself was only changed in very minor ways after 1225. And then at each successive political crisis throughout the 13th century, whenever the king, Henry III, or his son, Edward I, was seen as acting as a tyrant or acting outside the law, the barons insisting, insisted that the charter be reissued. So it was reissued in 1234, and again in 1253, and again in 1265, and again in 1297, and again in 1300. And on each of those occasions, the charter was distributed around England. Copies were sent to each of the shires, probably to each of the major towns, probably to the cathedrals. So an enormous number of these copies circulated. And as a result, the charter really became impregnable. It was something that had been reissued so many times in so many different circumstances, it had retained the wording that it had had since 1225. It had now become a totem, a symbol of all of those things that the law of, the law of England represented, due process against which the king could not really complain. And yet, it reminds me a bit of a sort of standard inauguration speech you know, of an American president, a lot of lovely thoughts. Uh, yep. As you say, the fact that it has to be keep being reissued suggests that it's, in a way, just a glorified version of the coronation charter. It's it's basically, really, I am a good guy. Really, it'll turn out okay. And if you don't believe yep. me, let me reissue it again. Uh, something changed somewhere along the line that made the Magna Carta akin, not literally, because, of course, you don't have a constitution, but akin to a founding document, a um, yep. 
uh, something that came down from Mount Sinai that, that people could say, Bob, but that violates – and one answer could be, well, who cares? <laughs> who cares if it's not constitutional? Who cares if it's not consistent with, with, the, uh, with the Old Testament? And yet it, it resonated in some way. What do you think happened? Okay, so there are two clauses of the 1215 Magna Carta that are really stating points of principle. Forget all the stuff about feudal heiresses and all of that. Even by 1300, even by the time the Charter was last issued as a single sheet document, those were all a bit archaic. But there are two clauses, clauses 39 and 40. The first one says, we will not go against any free man. We will not arrest them or imprison them or seize their property save by judgment of their peers or the law of the land. It's a very general, very vague statement. And Clause 40 of the 1215 Magna Carta says that we will not buy and sell justice. To no one shall we buy, to no one shall we deny or delay right or justice. Again, it's mum and apple pie. It's all very general stuff. But it's tremendously important because it does actually enunciate that principle of due process of the rule of law. And those two clauses survived. They became Clause 29 of the 1225 Magna Carta, and they're repeated on all subsequent reissues. They're really the only two clauses of Magna Carta that were then argued about in the law courts in the 17th century. And we have to jump all that way forward to the 17th century for the real significance of this document to come into focus once again. Now, you're absolutely right. Like a lot of this political rhetoric, a lot of hot air, what those clauses actually say is pretty vague. They say that you are to be tried by the law of the land. Well, that's repeated again and again. Kings keep saying they will try you by the law of the land, but they make what the law of the land is. The law of the land can be one thing on a Tuesday. It can be another thing on a Thursday. I don't know where your broadcasts go to, but I wouldn't really want to trust myself very, very immediately to the law of the land of North Korea, say. Sure. The law of the land of North Korea can be a bit different on a Thursday evening from what it was on Thursday afternoon. But they're there. They enunciate the principle of due process. And in the 17th century, a group of lawyers arguing that England had an ancient constitution, that the then kings of England, the Stuart kings of England, were contravening, stood up and said, look, Magna Carta is an expression of that ancient constitution. It goes all the way back to King Alfred. It goes all the way back, even before that, into the realms of myth, back to Arthur, back to Boudicca, back to who knows, back to prehistoric times. And um, this, this principle that the king can't just arbitrarily arrest people, that he must try people by the law of the land, that he must allow them to be tried by their equals, by their peers, that he can't buy or sell justice. We can use this against James I and then against Charles I, the Stuart kings of England. So people like Edward Cook, who was the chief justice of England under James I, who lost his office because he stood up and opposed the king, published his institutes on the basis of Magna Carta, showing that Magna Carta could actually be used as a liberty document against the king, that it guaranteed the liberties of all free-born Englishmen. And because by this stage, slavery, villainage, peasantry really has been abolished as a legal status, Magna Carta and those clauses now applies to everybody. Now, you characterized my characterization as hot air, and it's a fair characterization, but, but there is something extraordinarily eloquent and beautiful about the king conceding that tyranny should not stand. Even though in the, yeah. in the actual application, 
Tuesdays and Thursdays might be different. The public statement of it makes a difference. And I think the thing that I found inspiring about contemplating a document of 800 years ago is that a lot of times people put forward ideas and they say, well, this is impractical. It's not feasible. Uh, Politics will kill it. That was true of the Magna Carta. It was infeasible. It was silly. It lasted uh, 10 weeks. Yep. But it changed the world, probably. I mean, maybe we maybe were overstating it, but I think it did change the world because it gave something that people could tie their aspirations to uh, that was concrete and real and not just a vague idea. It was something that had been in print. And I think ideas like that end up mattering. Yeah, I, th- I think I would, I would go even further than you, actually. I would say, and I, I certainly agree it changed the history of the world. I certainly agree that it's changed the way that the entire Anglophone legal system regards itself and is regarded. I would go even further. I would say that a large part, it doesn't really matter what Magna Carta itself says, a large part of this is mythology, but the myth itself is terribly important. Agreed. The myth, even as early as the 12th century, that the English are a freeborn people. It's a load of nonsense. They come from Troy. They're the, they're the exiles from ancient Troy, defeated by the Greeks. They go off and they found this kingdom of England from which eventually they get a king called Arthur. But they are a freedom-loving people. They live under liberty and freedom. Of course, course it's nonsense. It's not actually true. But it's said enough times over and over and over again that the English people are free, that everyone actually believes that they are. And the same with Magna Carta. It's the iteration, the reiteration of that document. Again and again and again and again, the king is made to promise that he will not buy and sell justice, he will not arbitrarily arrest people. It's very difficult for a king in those circumstances to justify arbitrarily arresting people or buying and selling justice. He can do it, but he has to do it by underhand means. He can't actually do it in public. And I think that's, that's one of the great things. You could call it an organized hypocrisy, if you like, but it's one of the great things about the Anglo-American law tradition. It explains why people believe that they will get justice in an American or an English court, and perhaps not in a court in North Korea, because there is this very, very ancient tradition, very, very long-standing tradition that the courts are about justice, the courts are about the freedom of the individual, that liberty actually matters. It doesn't really matter what the specific meaning of liberty is in Magna Carta. I suspect it's very different from what we would think of as liberty today. I suspect our idea of liberty would be repulsive to those who actually drew up Magna Carta. It would be pretty repulsive to the, the framers of the American Constitution. I can't see George Washington walking down downtown Washington and being <laughs> anything other than repelled Appa- by what he was seeing. But, but, th- um, but, but it, it doesn't really matter what the word meant at the time. We have a, a, an idea of what that word yeah. actually entitles we, us to. We've infused it with its own, um, with its own meaning and uh, with our own meaning, and it's, uh, it's what matters. I'm struck by the idea of the American founding document, all men are created equal, it was obviously not true the way it was implemented. But you keep saying that, and eventually you're going to have trouble. And they all did, of course. They, they had a great deal of unease with the existence of slavery, and it, it took too long, but eventually it, it, it was destroyed. And it's a, um, as you say, Absolutely. you say it over and over again, it gets harder and harder to, uh, to be, a, be a hypocritical about it. Um, we're a little over time. Let, let's, uh, and it's late there in, in England. I appreciate you talking to us. Uh, quickly tell us, where you can physically see one of the copies of the Magna Carta today and what's going on in 2015. Uh, you're involved with the Magna Carta Project, which is an online resource. We'll put a, a link up to that, of course. 
Uh, but t- just f- uh, close us out with some details about uh, the Magna Carta uh, today. Okay, so if you want to see it, because it's been reissued so many times, there are actually over 20 original Magna Cartas from the 13th century. You can actually see it in Washington. So in the 1980s, Ross Perot bought a Magna Carta from a landholder in England. It's a 1297 Magna Carta. It's on display in the National Archives in Washington. Uh, You can see it in Canberra in Australia because the Australian government acquired one in the 1950s. The four 1215 Magna Cartas... One of them's in Lincoln Cathedral, one of them's in Salisbury, and the other two are in the British Library. And we have an enormous and really rather significant exhibition going on in the British Library at the moment where we've been able to bring together documents that have been separated for the last 800 years and actually tell this story in in a considerable amount of detail. The, the, The website you're talking about, I think probably readers who want to learn a bit more, you're going to find all sorts of things on there, stuff for schools and so forth. If you just type in Magna Carta Research, all one word, Magna Carta Research, you'll end up on our website. The celebrations for this 800th anniversary are extraordinary. Uh, They're going on all over England. There are a series of towns that are associated with the granting of Magna Carta in 1215 that are all doing things. The cathedrals that have Magna Cartas are all doing things. British Library is doing a major thing. Um, the royal family, one of the wonderful ironies of this, that this is a, a charter granted against the royal family, yeah. but because it's so ancient and because the royal family is itself so ancient, they too can be brought in on all of this. The queen is going to unveil something, we're not quite sure what, on the field of Runnymede on the 15th of June 2015. And over where you are, there are ongoing celebrations. I've been over now twice this year, and I'm going over another two times um, before the end of the summer. Um, There are celebrations all over America for the way that Magna Carta has been used in that fight against slavery, in the fight for freedom throughout American as well as English history. My guest today has been Nicholas Vincent. His book is Magna Carta, A Very Short Introduction. Nick, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you very much, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.